Hey there, listener, and welcome to a very special Halloween episode of Shuddersome. Tonight we're doing something different. I'll be telling you a good old-fashioned ghost story. And you know the best way to listen to a ghost story, don't you? Turn down the lights, gather your friends, clutch your blanket or your coat close, and surrender yourself to this Halloween night. Tonight's story, Inner Demons. Seventeen ninety one, New England. Somewhere in the woods, on the farthest outskirts of a small village with a population of just over three hundred, there was a small barn nestled beside a field of corn. To the left of the barn was a small house. This was the house of the McCready family. The McCready family mostly kept to themselves. Ed McCready didn't let his wife and son out much. They were instructed to stay inside. The only fresh air and exercise they would receive was while tending the cornfields or feeding their goats. Ed McCready considered himself a religious man. His wife, Elizabeth, and only child, Timothy, if ever asked and if promised their words would never be repeated, would have called Ed a harsh man, sometimes a mean man, occasionally a very violent man. But nobody ever asked them. Nobody ever would. It was fall of that year, 1791, that bad things began to happen on the McCready farm bad omens. It started with a vision. Ed dreamt of a plague. Black rain poured from the sky and down onto his cornfield, and the stalks withered and died. The goats in his barn became covered in the inky downpour, and they too began to fall ill and die. One by one they toppled, their bodies shriveling into deformed shapes, expelling dark, curdled slime from their orifices. In his dream, Ed ran into the house to fetch his wife and child, but standing there beside them was a beast, a bony and clawed hand on Elizabeth's shoulder. It was hidden in shadow, but Ed could tell the thing was enormous. The shape moved behind the farmer's wife and reached dark claws across her chest, ripped her nightgown away, and began to grope her naked body. The same inky black wetness that fell from the heavens just outside, dripping down her white skin, which soon turned yellow, then green, then began to shrivel and crack, just like his stalks of corn. But where Ed expected a scream of pain or fear from his wife, he heard insane and heinous laughter. Just as he reached for her, she clawed at his eyes, 
This jolted Ed awake. He never spoke of his dream aloud to anyone, but the visions of it puzzled him, worried him, haunted him. It was his dream that he recalled when he noticed the first bad omen. His crops. Ed noticed that a large portion of his field was dying. To save his sanity, he passed it off as a disease that might have infested the soil, but it became harder to excuse when he began to notice something else. He'd awake in the middle of the night and see Elizabeth was not there in bed beside him. When he searched the house with no luck, he went to look outside. Off far in the distance, out at the brim of the break, was his wife with a lantern. He thought suggestive questioning would conjure truth the next morning, but it never would. Night after night, morning after morning, she'd act as if nothing had happened. Ed saw the beast in her lies. The second and third omens came close together. Timothy, who had just turned nine years old, began to exhibit disturbing yet mysterious symptoms. He'd been working the fields and had suddenly collapsed. When his mother had reached him just moments later, his symptoms were already dire. His body was stiff and his eyes were rolling into the back of his head. Elizabeth's screams could be heard from across the fields and into the barn, where Ed had been bleeding a goat. A goat, he saw, that had fallen ill. A goat that had dark, almost black blood draining from its neck. Black like ink, Ed thought. The family could not leave. They could not take Timothy to the town doctor because Ed insisted they take care of the problem there, in their own house. Elizabeth begged him. She needed to know why this had happened, know what was wrong with her son. But Ed stood firm. We're not going anywhere, he said. We'll stay, and we'll pray. Timothy's condition subsided, and he seemed to be back to normal, so his father put him right back to work. But before the week's end, it happened again. Timothy fell, every muscle in his tiny body hardened like stone, and his pupils disappeared into his skull behind his fluttering eyelids. But now there was more. A thick froth began to form at his lips, and his voice let out a noise that sounded like old creaking wood. To the farmer, it did not sound like the noise of a child in pain, but rather the noise of a creature speaking out through the child's throat like an amplifying cone. It sounded unnatural. Elizabeth again pleaded that they go into town to see a doctor, but Ed refused. She said she'd go herself. He wouldn't have to go with them. He told her that was even more ridiculous. She said she would stay behind, but that he must take Timothy into town right away. Why do you always wish to leave? He'd asked her. I wish to save our son, she replied in disbelief of the question. A doctor cannot help what is wrong with the soul, Ed said. 
This is an evil that has cursed us, made its dwelling on our land. Cannot you see that it has cursed our boy as well? I see a sickness where medicine might help. Ed was becoming more and more suspicious. He couldn't believe that she couldn't see. Why? He asked. Why do you go out at night, Elizabeth? Where do you go? She looked surprised. She looked scared. She did not answer. We need to leave, she said. No, we're not going anywhere, was his only reply. Elizabeth would not wait for a miracle. She went out and gathered herbs and roots, once she remembered being told at a young age could heal and ease pain. She prepared the plant-based concoction, placed her pale son in his bed, lit candles, began tending to him. She prayed as hard as she could. Prayed in the language of her Eastern European mother, her first language, the language she had lost the accent two years ago when she began to assimilate to America. But Ed McCready didn't see praying in a mother language. He didn't see natural medicine. He didn't see candles to light the dark room so his wife could see her mother's recipe. He saw chanting in hushed tones he did not recognize. He saw spells and potions. He saw rituals. He saw the shadowy beast taking her, slipping into her. Ed McCready saw witchcraft, and he saw that there might only be one way to save his only son. He had her by the hair within moments, dragging her out of the room. She tried to stop him, but he was too strong and too blinded by superstition. He's having fits, she tried explaining. It's not a ghost, but an illness, and he needs a doctor. But Ed knew what this really was. This was not something of natural occurrence. This was dark magic. This was evil spirits. His witch of a wife had invited the devil into their home, and he had cursed their son, possessed him. It didn't matter what she said after that, how much she tried to deny it. Ed knew the truth. Ed forced her to the barn and fetched a rope to bind her, but she slipped free for just a moment and scratched him. Deep gouges along the front of his face, cutting his right eye and tearing his lip. She ran but never made it to the exit. She only got as far as the slaughtering corner, where she tripped and fell. And it was there amongst the abandoned, rotting carcasses of woodland animals, opened and left for examination, their heads on pikes and pools of spoiling blood soaking into the straw-covered ground, that she realized there was something very wrong with her husband, something much deeper than she had previously feared. They were healthy, Ed said as he came up behind her, as if to explain the horrific sight. 
Your curse has not reached past the farm. And I won't let it. He caught her, bound her, and threw her onto the back of his wagon. His horse pulled them to the farthest edge of the farm, deep in the woods, where there stood an ancient tree with branches that looked like crooked arms and reaching dead fingers. He prepared the noose, swung it over a thick, arching beam, and dragged Elizabeth to it, threw the loop around her head, and tied the other end to the wagon. It was only then that he began questioning her. He asked why she had cursed their goats, but she didn't know what he was talking about. He asked her again why she had made them sick, why she had poisoned their blood and their milk and made them unfit to eat. Elizabeth had no satisfactory answers for Ed. She'd been unaware that their livestock had been dying but explained that she might be able to save them if she was able to see for herself what was wrong. But Ed was convinced the fault was hers. The thought of her death gave him hope that his crops and his goats and his son would get better. And although Elizabeth pleaded to be spared, promising that she could save their precious son... Her pleas landed on deaf ears. A dream! She exclaimed in one final effort to speak to her husband's mythically driven mind. I dreamt of a spirit, an angel, guarding the woods, and she gave me a warning. So I try to find her. That's where I go. In the night I go looking at the tree line for answers. Anything that might help our son. She began to weep. Edward, please, it's me. Your wife. You're no wife of mine, he said to her. You're a bride of the devil. A witch. He whistled for his horse to pull. It obeyed. Elizabeth's feet gently left the ground. She hung for ten long minutes before she finally died. Three months passed. It was winter before Timothy started showing signs again. The thrashing was even worse now and his guttural utterings became louder. The boy's father felt lost. He didn't know what to do or how to help. Praying alone showed no progress, and he found he could not hold the boy down with his own two hands any longer. Timothy, when possessed by the darkness, was stronger than even Ed. His solution was to secure his son to the walls of the house with a thick rope wrapped around the boy's ankle. When that didn't work, he tried thicker rope. And when that didn't seem to do anything, he eventually switched to chains. But the fits only became more violent. The boy had shaken so intensely that he had broken fingers and toes. He'd even hit his head against the dining table and bled all over the floor. 
the crimson soaking into the wood like a macabre halo. When the pink, blood-frothed foam began to ooze from the corners of his boy's lips, Ed pressed a wooden cross, the same cross that hung above his head every night, against Timothy's contorted and spuming mouth. He'd press until his arms became sore, but nothing, much to his growing frustration, was working. Ed begged God to save his boy, to save his crops, to save their goats, but Ed never brought Timothy into town. It's what Elizabeth had asked for. It's what Timothy, when seemingly sober and still, would beg for. The witch and her cursed. What kind of man would he be to fall for that trap? So, they stayed, and Ed fought what he thought was a battle. And throughout the bouts of possession, he read the Bible as loudly as he could at the boy, pressed the cross to his face until the wave would pass. And that's when Ed McCready had another vision. Again, it came to him in his sleep. His son was in the center of the house, writhing as he did, and speaking in tongues and spitting out blood. He was lit by flickering orange candlelight. Behind him, across the room from Ed, was a dark doorway. From the black of this doorway came a sound like horses' feet. Slow, deliberate and intimidating steps. And then there became lit by the same light that illuminated his cursed son. A grotesque monster, unimaginable in its form. A thing that was part horned, hooved, and snouted creature, and part gigantic man. It stood there behind Timothy and stared at Ed. Ed held up his cross, but the beast did not flinch. Instead, it pointed to the boy, whose veins now shone blue between his thinning and pale skin as he twisted. Ed asked what it wanted. The monster pointed again, and this time, Timothy began to speak. His voice was barely recognizable as his own, but it was understandable. I have come to collect, Timothy said, through clenched and blood-stained teeth. Clatter and clack and clickety step. Up through hell I have slipped. In your dreams I have crept. Expect I acquittance. Pacts in blood must be kept. So clatter and clack and clickety step. I've come for a soul. I have come to collect. 
Ed clutched the cross close to his heart, took a step back as the beast took one forward, then another, then another, until it was upon his squirming boy. It sunk grimy and sharp fingernails into the boy's gut, and with a haunting squeal of lustful giddiness, the thing dragged Timothy into the darkness just beyond the doorframe. Its hoofsteps thudded loudly into the black. Louder. Louder. Then Ed awoke. It was a dark and freezing stormy night, and the thing that had jolted him from sleep echoed again loudly through the house. A heavy thud. Ed rose and brought his bedside lantern out to find his son writhing on the floor of his room, his limbs and his head hitting the ground with every lurch. Only this time, there was blood spraying from his mouth. Ed prepared the chains, went to his boy, just as Timothy screamed a deep, unearthly scream. He screamed in a language Ed did not understand, but did recognize. The language of Elizabeth's chanting spells. The boy's frail body arched upwards towards the ceiling, his entire weight pressing onto the hardwood through the back of his head and heels of his feet. His fingers cracked as they scratched for something, anything to grab onto. What they got hold of was Ed's leg, who had come bearing an iron ring. Ed brought the metal cuff to his child's wrist to lock it, but stopped when something warm and wet hit his cheek and fell to the ground. It was a tongue. Timothy's tongue. He'd bitten it off and had spat it at his father. Ed could swear that there on the floor of his home, in the light of the lantern that hung on the wall hook, that the tongue wiggled and squirmed. Ed could swear it was alive. To Ed, this was a sign. This was too far. This was too much. Clatter and clack, he said to himself. Clatter and clack. He took a cloth and pushed it deep into the boy's mouth, doing his best to avoid his son's snapping jaw. Using the manacles and chains, he tied the boy's wrists to his ankles and dragged him through the snow out to the side of the creaky barn, where the ice-covered wagon awaited. Timothy was tossed into the rear, and as Ed went to fetch the horse, Timothy's fits calmed. He became still, but this soon gave in to panic. His father came then with the horse and hooked up the wagon. With a whistle, off they rode. They bumped along a dirt path through the tall, dead stalks of their crop and to the farthest edge of the farm deep into the woods. It was called the Devil's Fingers, the crooked tree that sat in a clearing 
deep in the forest, where Elizabeth had hung and died, where her son was being brought, chained and gagged. The Devil's Fingers was where the Dark Angel himself would collect the soul he had bargained for, pull it back into hell as long as the condemned soul left the body there on its branches. At least, that's what Ed had been taught. That's what Ed believed. It's what the beast from his dreams meant when it spoke its rhyme, isn't it? If the spirit left the body in his home, it could infest something or someone else, as would a disease. Spirits jumped, you see, and people and things were hosts. He would not let his soul or any more of the goats in his barn, or the horse that pulled his wagon, or the paintings, or chairs, or very walls in his home to be corrupted by darkness. This cleansing, this expulsion of evil, it had to be done at the tree, or risk all of hell breaking loose. This is what Ed had to do. Timothy moaned behind the wad of cloth between his teeth, but he only got the same reply from his father. Clatter and clack. It was then, as they reached the edge of the cornfields at the entrance of the deep dark woods, that something made Ed's horse stop and kneel. There, like a guardian, bobbing its head almost Playfully, stood a lamb. Ed rose to his feet at the driver's seat and looked down at the meek little creature. He tried to shoo it away, but the lamb only bawed at him loudly, advanced boldly, and stomped its hooves in the cold dirt. Ed took out his hatchet, held it tight, not expecting a fight, but perhaps to frighten the nuisance away. He jumped from the wagon and began his approach when the tiny white thing bowed its head and started to trot. Ed stared on as it came close and then upon him and then moved past him and into the fields. His eyes watched it disappear into the tall stalks just as something else came into view. In the very spot the lamb had seemed to vanish, a white vapor materialized, took form, the shape of a person, the shape of a woman. Ed was terrified. His breath left him, and then the ghost began to charge towards him. The farmer turned and ran into the tree line into the dark forest towards the small clearing where the ancient tree stood. He ran until his lungs stung from the thin, icy air. He ran until he could no longer feel his feet. He ran, daring to look back over his shoulder, only to check on his pursuer. The spirit was gaining. Ed swore he could hear its bone-chilling moan in the air. The wind through the dead trees was its shrieking voice. Another voice, then, the beast from his dreams, seemed to speak through the snapping of branches and crunching of stiff leaves beneath the farmer's boots. 
Ed reached the tree, ran to its base, turned to face the spirit hatchet held out like a holy shield. The white vapor carried snowflakes up with it, which only seemed to add detail to its form. It was her. It was Elizabeth. Ed knew that it was. The wind blew against him, pushing him onto the trunk and tossing up leaves to blind his good eye. The man climbed, up the devil's fingers, away from the onslaught of the apparition. He climbed though there was no feeling in his toes, and though his legs were sore, and though his lungs were weak. He climbed, axe in hand and fear in heart, away from the threat. But the threat began to ascend along with him. The chill rose, the wind howled, the winter debris clouded his vision and he screamed out in terror. He swung his weapon into the night aimlessly. The long, jagged branches pointed up toward the sky, giving the farmer direction. away from the encroaching and vengeful ghost until a small patch of ice on a branch took his weight. His boot slipped from beneath him. His cold fingers were not able to grasp onto anything tightly enough to save his fall. He hit many limbs on his descent, banging his head and breaking his leg. But before he hit the ground, a notch in the tree caught his shattered ankle and saved him from sudden death. Hung him upside down, several feet from the snowy floor below, where his axe had landed in a root. Ed could not lift himself. The pain in his leg was too great. He could not cut himself free. His weapon was just out of reach. He swayed there, on the tree, in the freezing night, as his wife had. He screamed out for help, but no one would come. The temperature dropped lower and lower with every passing minute, and the darkness swallowed his desperate yet softening cries. Ed hung for hours before he finally died. I've come for a soul. I have come to collect. Timothy did not make it to morning. Chained and gagged and beaten and starved. It was the chill that took him in the night. His body was found in the rear of the wagon when the horse pulled into town without its driver. This led the townsfolk back up the road where the cart had just come. Somewhere in the woods, 
on the farthest outskirts of their small village. Out to a small barn, nestled beside a field of dead corn. The farm of the McCready family, where they found a pile of dead animals, the body of the farmer hanging from an old tree, and the bones of his wife buried not far from its roots. And now it is said, if ever you're out in the New Hampshire woods, on the outskirts of Hannock, near the edge of what's left of what once was a farm, and you wander out past where good sense would allow that you may find the fingers and somewhere nearby buried under some brush you may find a cleaver and on certain cold nights through the thick of the trees you may hear a noise just as faint as can be what you'll hear is not the wind nor a bird nor a sheep what you'll hear is chains rattle, a cry, and a shriek. A pale, bloodied small boy who wanders the woods but cannot make words. He hasn't a tongue to do so, you see. When he opens his mouth, crimson blood stains his lips. He may moan out in anguish while thrashing in fits. He's in search of his mother, who was hung by his father. An angel, a devil, and a soul left to wander. This special Halloween episode was written and produced by me, Demetri Creno. If you haven't already checked out our Instagram page, you should totally do that. We post something creepy six days a week. Seriously. So if you want some spooky in your feed, go ahead and follow us. You can also go like and follow us on Facebook, where we post more long-form stuff like creepy headlines we hear in the news, or eerie historical facts. If you like what you hear, go tell all your friends about us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And leave us a review. That actually really does help. Another way to support the show is by donating to our GoFundMe. The goal has always been to make this a bi-weekly show. And if we reach our GoFundMe goal... I'll be able to do that. So please, if you can, any amount is greatly appreciated. You can find the link to our GoFundMe campaign in the support page of our stellar website, Shuttersome.com. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart in advance. I also want to thank MyU 
for their incredible and haunting music, which you've been hearing throughout this episode. You can find them at MyU on YouTube. That's M-Y-U-U. Go give their stuff a listen. You will not regret it. Guys, I hope you're all having a great night. May it be filled with scary movies, junk food, costumes, and the best of friends. And a little Shuddersome. A lot of Shuddersome. Just as long as Shuddersome is part of your Halloween, not be happy. We'll have a new episode out in a couple weeks, so keep an ear out. But in the meantime, lock all your doors and windows. Yeah, because you really never know what could be out there. Have a very, very happy Halloween. And thanks for listening. <laughs>